Dan has given a, a brief of looking at a couple of different guys today at Old Testament heroes of faith. So today we're going to be looking at the person Gideon and what we can learn from his life. So if you want to browse or flick to um, Judges chapter 6, that's where his story begins. Um, and we will be um, looking at a few points in his life and just sort of walking through the story of Gideon a little bit um, today. So you can find it and get your thumb in there, but when we'll... Um, look at a couple of other things first. I found Blessan's message last week very encouraging, um, and we also sit in a similar time in the Old Testament. Um, he was talking about Ruth, and that appeared in the time of the judges, and uh, that's exactly the sort of zone that we find ourselves in when looking at Gideon, a little bit further down the line after that. And so we sit in in terms of the, the narrative of the Bible in this time when there we, we saw um, Moses and Joshua uh, coming into the promised land um, and then there's this interim period really of the judges um, before we then get to um, a king, the time of Saul and, and David um, ruling as a king. So we've got these different military leaders really and it's not like David where he was ruling over um, most of Israel. We've got pockets of different people being risen up at different times, different locations. Some of them overlap, um, and it's more of a kind of um, bits and bobs of leadership really happening at at different times. So there's the span of God's plan, um, judging back from promises of the promised land, and there's a future hope of a king being put in place. Um, And so we've got the big kind of story um, of the Bible Um, But then, a bit like in a Star Wars film where you start off with impressive credits and there's the spaceship and it's all very grand and then they kind of zoom into a couple of robots walking along the the sand. We suddenly find ourselves at the start of the story of Gideon um, with, who I assume is a young man, um, threshing wheat inside a wine press. Um, It's a humble beginning for him. You wouldn't normally uh, thresh wheat inside a wine press. But if you're familiar with the story at all, as I'm sure a lot of you are, they were being oppressed by people around them, uh, the Midianites. So he was afraid. He was having to um, prepare their food and their drink in a secret private place um, because they they had been coming in and attacking and and destroying all their crops and not leaving any uh, livestock alive. Uh, whatsoever. So it's a humble beginning. So in, um, uh, but we're, we're told that Gideon is a hero of the faith. Obviously, Rich is preaching through Hebrews at the moment. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, it talks about um, heroes of the faith. It says this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. How did Gideon get to that point where he's spoken about in such a way um, there in Hebrews? And his story is perhaps not the kind of um, neat story that we might see summarized in the children's Bibles. Um, It's not quite the clean or clear-cut hero that perhaps we sometimes perceive him to be. And I must admit, um, I really didn't like Gideon at one point. And I think it's perhaps a case of if you 
perhaps read a book and you read the last page first. It can really spoil the story. Um, he didn't, I would say, particularly leave a fantastic legacy. Um, one of the first things that happened towards the end of his life um, was that he created a, a golden ephod, um, which the Israelites turned to and worshipped to, and it became a stumbling block to them. And I must admit, I thought, some leader he was. He wasn't the hero I wanted him to be. Other examples was that, obviously, he made this um, this this item that was became unhelpful. Uh, his legacy wasn't great. His son, Abimelech, went on to kill all the rest of his other sons, 70 of them. Um, so it wasn't fantastic. And even though there was a period of, of peace and of rest for 40 years um, during his rule, everybody turned away uh, the, from God again immediately um, as Gideon died. But God did use him to do a significant thing for his people. And in many ways, I think it's perhaps my attitude of what a hero of faith actually is that was perhaps, uh, to some degree, a fault. So we've got the start of the story with Gideon threshing wheat, and they're being attacked by the Midianites, um, and they're not leaving anything alive. And then a prophet delivers a message to the people to tell them that they've not been following his ways. And then straight after that, an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And we read this in chapter 6, verse 11 onwards. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Abizite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon's first response wasn't particularly one of faith, and he was very much aware of his weakness. His clan was the smallest in Manasseh, um, and the, 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 the tribe of Manasseh, you could look back and you could argue that it has humble beginnings. It was a half-tribe. Um, they were the sons of uh, Joseph, and actually at the point in which Joseph's father was going to die, Jacob, uh, he brought his sons to him for him to lay his hands on them and to... Um, put a blessing, hands of blessing on their lives. And obviously what the custom would have normally been would have been the eldest son would have obviously had that position um, of prominence and blessing in the family. But actually, he chose to put his hand firstly um, on, not on Manasseh's head, but on his brother's head. Um, So as much as he's aware of his immediate surroundings, you could say there was was humble aspects about his, his kind of family history. But Main focus of today, there are three reasons why we can be encouraged by the weakness and failings um, that we see in Gideon's life. Um, First one, it doesn't matter how important you are, what's important is that God has called you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can sit here this morning and say, I am called. In fact, why don't we do it? Why don't we say, one, two, three, I am called. 
Um, we're not a little bit called, very theological statement this one, you're a lot called. Um, Gideon's call from God specifically at the start of the story is very clear. He says in Judges 6, chapter four, um, verse 14, am I not sending you? But God's call to us is equally clear throughout the Bible. A um, couple of places, John chapter 20 and 21, when Jesus appears to the disciples, he says, um, Jesus, appearing to the disciples, said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And that is a statement that was to the people in front of him, the disciples, but obviously a commissioning statement at that early stage of initiating um, his church. And the reason I'm saying this, the point I want to make today here is not so much a full explanation of what it is to be called by God, but I think it's something that we need to, as much as we understand it, and to internalize it and to believe it and live with it in our spirits in a very present way. Um, Romans chapter 8 talks also about um, the fact that God has called us. It says in Romans 8 and 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn, firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and that he, those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. How called are we? If we look at this, we can see if we go right back to the distant past, before the creation of the world, then it says that God foreknew us and predestined about us. He knew about you before he made the world. If we look to the more recent future of the time of Jesus, in, in which the time he died as a sacrifice for us, we can see that he called and justified us through Christ. And we can thankfully look to the future and know that our calling is to be glorified with God. We are all called as God's people. But in this story and in our lives, we can know God's individual call to us um, in a very specifically individually felt way. And it's easier to understand perhaps this general call, but it's harder sometimes individually to accept the fact experientially that we as individuals are called. Our internal response is often something like, yes, but I'm ordinary. Yes, but I'm just kind of normal. Or maybe, yes, but I'm cynical. Some things have gone wrong. Some things have not worked out perhaps as planned. Um, And actually, you can just feel like at one point, I knew what it was to have God speak into my life. I knew what it was to have had people speak words into me and to have passion for some of the things that God's put in my heart. But circumstances, circumstances have gone against me. Circumstances can grow around us and sometimes we can feel entwined in them and they can hold on to us and pull us down. I think we refer to in the worship about mountains. Sometimes it can be feel like there's mountains in our lives that are hard things to scale and, and get over. But other times they can just feel like they pull us down and they take away our freedom. And actually they can be like weeds. But we don't need to worry. Because God knows that actually as believers today, we live amongst weeds. Um, it's referred to in, in Matthew chapter 18, there's the parable of the weeds. And it talks about the fact that God what God's kingdom is like. And actually, he's leaving the weeds to grow amongst the good wheat. 
both exist at the same time. And actually, he's not coming to make that harvest and to chop things away because he doesn't want to lose the, the good crops, us, the people of God that he's growing up. He doesn't want to bring judgment on them whilst the weeds are growing side by side. God knows that we live in a world that is waiting for a harvest, waiting for a future hope where God will make things new. He knows that we live in these things that complicate the call and our ambition to live for God. We've reflected already in the worship, but maybe just take a moment to think now, what weeds, what challenges, what mountains am I conscious of today? And how can they perhaps be affecting my ability to know that God has called me and to live that out. Gideon, as we've discussed, was experiencing a siege of an army coming and there was the threat of starvation for the people. He was fearful. He had to carry out his work in secret. And circumstances like that, of course, can seem like a barrier to God working. Um, If we think our situations are challenges was challenging, his was worse. They were worried about their lives, they were worried about what they were going to eat. And even Gideon was not unaffected by the circumstances uh, he faced. We may not be full of faith uh, sometimes and think we're not in the best position to hear from God, but neither was Gideon. And this was his response to God's call in chapter 6, verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. Gideon wasn't exactly in a position of faith at this time, but God dealt with him graciously. He dealt with him patiently. He dealt with him tenderly and to bring through the purpose of God through his life. The next thing we see in response to the Gideon um, having this call is that he makes an offering to this angel that's appeared to him and spoken to him. And as a sign, the angel touches the offering, the the meat and the bread, and it's burnt up as a flame. Um, And then he's given an instruction in verse 25, chapter 6 again, in verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear it down, your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as an offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Which brings us on to my second point. You don't need to have a perfect life. You don't have to have a sorted home situation. To You just need a worshipful one. Or in other words, it doesn't matter actually if your dad has a giant statue to an idol in his garden. You can still be called by God. It's comforting to know. Um, I wonder, has your family background been conducive to following God? Or to what extent is your home life or your immediate situation um, conducive to living out a life for Jesus? Um, Perhaps actually your family or those immediate to you don't know God and they don't follow Jesus. Or perhaps for some of us it's just that it's not particularly a source of encouragement. Um, God 
was still able to use Gideon in these circumstances. And so it is for you too. Um, it's interesting to note that actually, whilst the, f- the, first God, the first thing that God spoke to Gideon was about was about calling him, but the first action he gave him was to address the issues in his family and those in his closest community before going to save the people more um, widely. And I think this point really resonates. You know, I'm sure all of us have had God speak to us individually about significant things in our lives at different points. Um, and I just remember this was the case for me too. In my youth, you know, God spoke to me about so many things. Um, but how often is it that the crucible, the place where the hard work happens, is actually in our home life and in our family life? Um, I remember as a student, I had some fantastic opportunity to just serve God and freedom to do some things. And, and one of my good friends at the church I was at at the time, he, he'd led the youth work. And I was able to sort of tag along and get involved. And we had some great times gathering people, putting on meetings, having some great experiences with God. And similarly in the student work, it was fantastic. We'd just be able to reach out to people, build some great friendships and see some God really stirring us and, and doing good things. Um, but the other thing that happened in my life at that time was I was getting to know Hannah at the time. I think we were, we became engaged along that, at that point, at some point during my student life. And, um, he began to work with me, my relationship with my family. Um, my parents' background had various challenges, um, growing up and that impacted on my relationship with them. And, I would go home and there was nothing dramatically, obviously unusual about her family life. But things like, you know, if I'd been home as a student for the summer and that time with my my family and it was time for me to go back away uh, to where I went to university in Norwich, you know, when I said goodbye to my dad, I'd shake his hand. That's quite unusual, isn't it? To shake hands with your dad that you've grown up with. But, you know, you'd expect a bit of a hug and a well done and da da And it was subtle, but it was there. And it suddenly realized, actually, there's deeper problems in our family here. And, and God spoke into those things. So perhaps you could say, on one side, I was very conscious of the fact that, you know, we were doing some things for God. We were seeing young people saved. We were seeing young people get excited about living out their faith. But actually, the work that he was doing in parallel with that was actually much more long-lasting, much more significant in many ways, and that he repaired things with my family. And I don't want to be overly allegorical about this section of the story with Gideon and say, okay, this is a pattern that, okay, God calls you and first he takes you to his home. And it was, it was about more than just his family. It was about that area. So I'm not saying that there's a pattern here, but it just stands out to me. It's like, here you go, Gideon. I'm going to save my people by your hand. First of all, go to your own town, go to your own people um, and address this issue. Um, and his, this, this Asherah pole that he had to put down was obviously a very visible problem. There was an idol, and it needed to be dealt with immediately. It needed to be cut down. And actually, God was addressing who they worship. Um, Tozu, a theologian, he, he, um, he, he made this statement that actually, though, an idol of the mind is as destructive as an idol of the hand. They built things with their hands, but the things that we decide to give our energy to, our focus, our time, um, and the center of our life to, can be much more subtle but effective. Um, Colossians encourages us actually: everything that we do, do it to serve the God, to, to serve as to serve God. 
Um, but other things can creep in that are subtle in our home life, such as time in front of a screen, the mobile phone, um, our jobs, our work. They can become, they can become idols in our lives. Um, perhaps comfort. Maybe you've had a difficult experiences in your life and now actually I want to put all that behind me. I don't want to do anything that's going to put me in the way of challenge or pain or criticism. But actually, I'm going to devote my life to just keeping things at arm's length and ensuring my comfort. And a comfortable home life can actually be a breeding ground for um, anything other than living for God's kingdom. And I think in Deuteronomy, when, it, when, when Moses talks about um, Joshua's succession, I think they allude to this a little bit um, in, in chapter 31 and verse 20 when it says, Have I brought them into the land flowing of... When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised an oath to the, uh, the ancestors, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. They got the land. They were thriving. But that's when he predicts that they would turn away. Other things can become allergies in our lives. The success of our children. Of course, it's natural to want our children to succeed and put energy and time and effort into that. But it can become something else. Um, Perhaps having our lives in order and being in control of everything and having it sorted can become an idol. How do we know when a good thing that demands a lot of effort is becoming something more than that and it's taking the wrong place in our lives? Practically, I think there's two ways to tell. One, we get very angry when it doesn't quite work out, or it doesn't go in the direction we hoped it for. Secondly, I think we can go to unusual lengths to ensure that whatever it may be is, is, is sorted, is right. Um, you know, we can go to great lengths to making sure that we've got a, a comfortable life. I'm not giving money to that. Um, I'm not going to go that. I'm going to not make too many friends or new, meet new people because I'm keeping control. We need to be careful and we need to keep an eye on it. Um, but God wanted to first of all our first action for Gideon was to address things closer to home for me it was my family situation and for, for, for healing there and bringing comfort um, but so often it can be about the things that we want in our lives um, and we need to make sure that we're not held by them so rather than giving the good things that we have Um, sorry, rather than serving the good things that we have, let's thank God for them instead and let's submit them to serving his purpose. Okay, so as we move along the story, Gideon gets in a little bit of trouble for tearing down the Asherah poles in his father's house. Um, As you can imagine, the other people in the city weren't pleased about this and they demanded his life and that he should be killed for doing it. Thankfully, his dad sticks up for him, even though he was a worshipper of Baal, which these um, poles represented. So he very cleverly says, okay, if Baal, um, if this is such a terrible act against this God, then he should be able to stand up for himself. And rather than killing my son, let Baal contend for himself. And from this point on in the story onwards, Gideon is referred to as Jerubal, which means God contend. It's a symbol of saying, okay, well, if it's so bad, let Baal take his life rather than you. And shortly afterwards, we see Gideon again inquiring of God. So we've got the, the incident here of the fleece in uh, verse 36 now of that chapter. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you've promised, Look, 
I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground around is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung it out, and the dew came out, and there was a bowl full of water. And Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with this fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground around was covered with dew. To be a hero of the faith, um, you don't need unquestioning faith. You just need obedience. Um, Or in other words, having a comfort blanket doesn't mean that you can't be Rambo. Gideon had a comfort blanket, and yet he was going to go into a major, major battle. And there's two things that I think we can learn um, about faith uh, from Gideon. Firstly, actually, yes, we can question God. Um, Gideon was not an untouchable hero uh, who never doubts, who never wavers. Um, Actually, I would say Gideon inquired from a position of faith. In fact, if there's any doubt in that matter, I would say this. If we read just a couple of uh, verses prior in verse 33, it says, Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizites to follow him. He sent messages through Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. And here's the deal about if we think Gideon um, was someone who didn't have faith, then my point is, when you have blown a trumpet and armies have come to join you, when you're just an ordinary guy, when you've achieved that, then I think we can criticize um, Gideon of not having faith, because that is an incredible thing. He's seen people gather to him uh, when the Holy Spirit has stirred him. And actually, I'd say it's perhaps less that Gideon doubts, but more that he questions His inquiries, I feel, were in the right place. Notice what Gideon didn't ask. He didn't ask, God, are you able to? God, are you powerful enough? Uh, God, do you care enough to deliver us from the Midianites? What he wanted to check was actually, is God with me? Um, Am I on the right track? He says, is it by my hand that you want to deliver us? It was whether it was by his hand um, that he wanted to question of God. Um, we see that the first time, so in verse 36, he says, 36, he says, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. And in 39, he says, do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test. I would say his approach to God is respectful. It's fearful. But ultimately, he is prepared to then be obedient. And I think we can see an example, a helpful example here. It's almost like saying, um, God, I know you've spoken before. I believe you can do it. I trust you. But please, can you confirm this is the right step? I don't want to assume. I don't want to assume this is the right way at this time. And it reminds me of um, the father in Mark chapter 9, whose son was having convulsions. And he says, um, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I love that verse. I think it's so helpful and so easy to relate to. Um, And equally, Gideon may have asked for confirmation the first time with the sign of the fleece. But actually, the second time, God initiates it. In chapter 7 and verse 9, the Lord instructs him. He says, 
During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down to the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. So they're, 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 look, they're, they're surrounding the Midianites who are camped out for battle. If you are afraid to attack, do not go down to the camp with, um, sorry, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. It's okay to go back to God for confirmation from time to time. So long as our desire is to be obedient, we can go back as many times as we like. Um, The key thing is we don't just stay still paralyzed as we do it. God's instruction to Gideon um, after his initial questioning was, go in the strength that you have. Gideon had lessons to learn about trusting God and having faith in him. But right at the beginning, God said, go. Go in the strength that you have. Act now whilst I'm teaching you and whilst I'm building faith in your life. The two things were happening um, at the same time. I remember having to being in a position in my life when I felt that actually God was leading me to take an uncomfortable step. Um, I was in a job and I felt it was the right thing to leave that job. Um, things were a bit stuck. I didn't feel like things were as healthy as they could be. And I felt God stirring me about actually stepping out and working for myself. Oh, it was a big step at the time. It felt huge. Um, I didn't have children, but I was married. We had a house. There was responsibility. And, um, and I was clear that God had spoken to me about this very specifically um, and put his, put his hand on there. I hadn't I hadn't got a safety net. We hadn't got lots of savings. I hadn't been working in evenings and weekends to build a business on the side. It was just a case of, I need to make a change. And I need to make a change now. And God spoke to me about that. And, and yes, I was fearful. But I came back to God and he brought reassurance um, about that. And he gave me the Holy Spirit to take that faith. Um, and yes, I spoke with others. And I spoke to Dan. And I spoke to, to Hannah and others to, to, to get some kind of sense check on it all. But I remember being brought to this point where I just needed to uh, take a step of faith. And, and we see Gideon questioned, but the outcome was obedient, obedience. And the book of James talks about this a lot, that faith leads to action. We don't just believe, we do. Um, and it leads us to places that we'd never gone before. And I'm so thankful that God's Holy Spirit helped me in that situation to take a step of obedience because it just opened up such good things. God provided me all through that time. Yes, I didn't find it easy, but, but God encouraged me and he provided me all through that period. And he opened up opportunities into new types of work and new networks and new things that I would have never been out to do. It freed me up um, to face certain things that were happening in our family. It was a massive blessing in my life. And I'm so thankful that God led me to act on the faith that he gave me through his Holy Spirit. Um, secondly, second point about faith is we are not the authors of our own faith. Faith doesn't come from us. Faith comes from God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 famously says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. And this is not just true about saving faith, the the faith that God has given us to be Christians and to follow him, but also in our living faith. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, it says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given 
for the common good. To one there is given through a spirit of, uh, through the spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge, um, by means of the same spirit to another, faith. Faith. And faith is not just for us and our use, but it's for the common good, it says. So let's not, when we, we look at Gideon and did he have faith? Did he question God? Did he respond to him well? Let's not see faith as an indicator as a, as a, of our success of being a Christian. It's a gift given to us, actually, to be nurtured and to cultivate and to grow. It's not a marker of um, our committedness. And so we see Gideon um, responding in faith to his instruction. And he actually, he goes on. God goes on to lead him to do great things. He wins the battles. He was an army of thousands of men, and God whittles them down um, just to 300 men. And then he gives, sends them into battle, um, not with military power and military might, but with a, with a jar, with a, a, a flame, a torch flame, and some trumpets. And he leads them around the, the, the Midian camp. And what they do is, um, on Gideon's instruction, they shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they, they have their, their torches um, in the dead of night hidden in a jar. And they smash them so the light's suddenly revealed. And they blow the trumpets at the same time. And God uses this miraculously to then strike confusion in the camp of the Midianites. So they... Um, all of a sudden, you know, this is this high point in terms of what God's called him to do. And the Midianites are confused and they turn on each other and they fight and they kill one another. And then eventually they flee and God's people are set after them um, and they chase them down. And God, Gideon wins the fantastic battle after being faithful to God. And um, as we kind of come towards, towards the end, this for me is where I feel things begin to change for Gideon. He wins great battles in his story, and he overcomes oppositions. And yes, later on in the story, he gets caught up in some revenge where people fail to help him. Um, but yeah, he also encourages the people to maintain the Lord as their leader. In Judges chapter 8 and verse 22, the Israelites um, said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But what seems to be absent in the rest of the story of Gideon, compared to what we see in those early, early stages of his story, is that we don't see him coming back to God again for direction. We don't see him checking back in um, and asking for guidance as he starts to fight various battles and make various decisions. Um, and yes, God had said to him, go in the strength that you have, but... At that point, it was clear at the start what God gave him specific instructions. And now we seem to feel that, um, see Gideon moving into a slightly different place. Um, if we look in uh, right towards the end of his story, as I alluded to at the beginning, um, in chapter 8 and verse 24, he says to the people, after completing this great battle against the Midianites, I do have one request. That each of you gives me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was a custom for the Ishmaelites to um, wear gold rings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw in a ring from his plunder into it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. Um, not counting the ornaments, the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels. Next, Gideon made the gold into an ephod which he placed in Afra, his town, 
all Israelites, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it, worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And Gideon appears to change from a position of obedience to increasingly self-confidence in his own decisions. Um, he's achieved some glory moments, but that doesn't move Gideon into a special category of now being able to make his own decisions without coming back to God. Um, I think he made this this ephod for good. An ephod was worn by the priests. It had stones in it that represented the different tribes. And I think he, my, my reading of it is that actually it was meant to be a positive symbol of I'm not going to rule over you. God should rule over you. But as good a motive as perhaps was there, it's not what God t- instructed in terms of how the priestly garments and things should be produced and where they should be and how they should be used. Um, he wasn't what he meant for good wasn't helpful. And I think what we can learn from here is we need both radical obedience to God when there's something big to achieve that he's called her to. But we also need routine obedience to God after the battle or in the everyday or in the, mo- in the, the mundane. We keep, need to keep seeking him. Um, do we keep inquiring of God um, even when there's no great challenge? Knowing God's guidance in the simple everyday keeps us from a lot of folly, a lot of fall down. Because when there isn't something that we've got that's impressive to put our hands to, but we want to, um, and we're not checking in with God, we can get caught up in things like self-ambition, comparing ourselves to one another, um, maybe trying to impress others, compete with our peers, or, or just trying to put out an image that actually there is stuff going on in our lives, or I'm about more than what you can see in my life here and now. God's got greater things for me. But actually, if we stay obedient and checking in and seeking God for his guidance, then we can know in our spirit that assurance that actually where I am is right now is where God's put me. And I understand that because I'm listening to him. So just to conclude then, what, have we, what, what things can we learn from Gideon's life? We can be encouraged that no matter where we find ourselves today, whether you're in a position of strength or a position of weakness, we can know that God has foreknown you and that he's predestined you. Equally, he can speak to you today with new instructions, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. And he has plans that he wants to outwork in you. We can be encouraged that as non-perfect people, with just a little bit of obedience, can do brave exploits for God. It's obedience that God is looking for firstly. Not sorted, straightened, um, perfect Christians with perfect home lives. What does bravery look like? Does it look like bold acts from a position of strength? No, it looks like actively listening to God. Taking steps of obedience in response, no matter what the current circumstances are. It's about walking by faith and not by sight. Can we look at Gideon in every way and say, be like him? No, but we can learn from him at his best. And when Gideon was at his best was when he was being actively obedient in clarifying God's word and his instruction in his life. This simple obedience enabled 300 men to win a battle of over 120,000 men. It's enabled him to be God's agent when all circumstances were going in one way and heading in a certain direction, to see them change and go in the other direction. The obedience God can use to spark a change. And change doesn't happen with just one individual. It takes people 
a group of people to bring lasting change. But God can speak to you in any situation today and cause you to be a catalyst for change. For changing the circumstances in your life, but for changing the circumstances of those near to you, those who are within your reach, those who you can affect. In many ways, you could say, we're only ever one obedient step of faith away from being a hero of the faith. We only ever need to make where we are. Our next decision of obedience can transform us from being in a place where we're so conscious that of the mountain. We're so conscious of the weeds that we grow up around our lives. Um, but the message that Jesus came to bring to us, the gospel was that our past does not determine our future. Our tomorrow is more important than our yesterday. Jesus takes people and he transforms them from where they are into whole new places. What does our next step of obedience look like? For you, what does the Holy Spirit want to put his hand on to, in your life to say, what is your next step of obedience? And I'll close now with um, the instruction that God gave to Gideon. Go now in the strength that you have. Has God not sent you? Amen. Invite the guys back up and I'll pray and take it from there. Um, Father, I thank you. I thank you for your kindness and patience and grace in our lives, Lord. I thank you, Father, that the Bible is full of people who we can quickly see are not perfect and strong in and of themselves. But you are the transforming God who calls the ordinary to achieve the extraordinary for you, Father. I thank you, God, that we don't need to be cast down in guilt and shame, but you've brought us into a justified place of freedom and life, Lord Jesus. I thank you that we can act in faith and obedience whilst there's still things in our lives that are not as we want them to be. But, Father, I thank you, as simple as obedient, as simple as our obedience may be, I pray, Father, that your Spirit would give us strength to make those steps and that you do uh, wonderfully fruitful things um, with the obedience in accordance to your plan. Amen.